Today is August 21st, 2021. This is episode 135 of Back to Normal, so let's get started. All right, I have a few pieces of, you know, follow-up on things to discuss, um, and then I want to get into a big project, which is something that I did two years ago, um, and that is going over the vote compass questions, the Canada votes compass, because the biggest news since I've been gone is that a Canadian election was called. Um, and we have about 30 days left until the election, which means um, since last time in, in 2019, you can go back and look at this. Um, I analyzed what information, like what you needed to know basically to understand the vote compass questions, whether I thought they were good questions, whether I thought they heavily implied something or left out a lot of detail, these kinds of things. So I want to do that again. I want to kind of look at the the questions in detail. Um, and since there are five Saturdays left until the election, there are 30 questions. Um, what I'm going to do is look at six questions per week until the election. Um, but that, so that's going to be the majority of the time that I'm going to spend um, in this episode. But I also wanted to just update, uh, like provide a life update. If you're a listener of the show every week dedicated, first of all, thank you. But second of all, you would have noticed that last week I did not record a show. Um, I basically left on vacation two weeks ago, and I think I recorded that episode late even. Uh, and then I went on vacation and then came back and didn't record an episode. And the reason for that is that we were gone until Friday um, and coming back from the vacation actually on Friday, both my daughter and I had like runny nose basically and like very mild fever uh, at one point my daughter had. And so we got COVID tests on the way home from our vacation, which were negative, um, thankfully. But uh, that was a whole complicating thing. And then I woke up on Saturday morning really quite sick, like very ill and just not having it. And that has persisted. I don't know if you can tell from my voice right now, but that has persisted throughout the week. I'm feeling a lot better, but my voice is still definitely feeling the effects of illness. And so all of that put together, plus the election being called and me trying to plan out this vote compass stuff has just meant that I have not recorded an episode. I didn't record an episode last week. I thought about it. I was like, could I just do one midweek and like talk about this vote compass stuff? And I was just like, it didn't, it didn't make sense. I'm also on parental leave now as of the end of yesterday. And so for five weeks, I am not going to be working at my job. I'm going to be having a lot of family time. And it's just like, I needed, I had so much like stuff to get done this weekend. And uh, I knew that this was coming. So I was like, I'm sick. I'm giving myself a pass for recording last week's episode. And now I want to jump right in to the vote compass questions. Having gotten that out of the way. Um, yeah, because these are going to take a while. I always talk about these for a long time and I don't want this episode to go too long. And so, um, we'll just jump right in. So these questions, I believe you get the vote compass questions in random order. So these are going to be the first six questions that I got when I took the vote compass. It's actually a lot of work to, to build all of this together, but I've got the text of the 30 questions as well as images, um, depicting them for, um, yeah, for when I post this episode. Uh, and so the first question that I got is, uh, not actually a question. It's actually a statement. Um, so only those who speak both English and French should be considered for top jobs in the federal government. And these questions themselves, you'll, if you have never answered these questions, you'll, you'll know if you think about them, especially working in government, like I do, you'll know, okay, because a question like this, talking about jobs in the federal government, if you work there, you already know that different jobs have different language requirements, depending on how much you're speaking with the public. Because the Official Languages Act is very um, descriptive. It's very detailed. 
and it talks a lot about um, the requirements to serve the public in either official language, in the language of their of the person you're serving's choice. And that's why this question is worded the way that it is. Um, and this especially, I think, comes down to um, Governor General Mary Scott, who is who is the governor general, but has has lacking French skills. I think she would not qualify for the job if bilingualism was a requirement. Uh, bilingualism being French and English, both of Canada's um, languages. Obviously, she can speak other languages being an indigenous person. Um, I know almost nothing about her backstory. So I'm not going to, I don't know any more details than that, but I am 100% certain that she can speak more than one language. She doesn't just speak English. Um, but in Canada, officially in the government, bilingualism means English and French. They never really consider that. And that's why this question says only those who speak both English and French, not only those who are bilingual. And um, so basically this gets me down. It's like <laughs> when you start to think like, what should I add? What would I answer for this question? Working in government. Um, Obviously, if I was like for me, my own job being an English person, being an English speaking person, um, if it were up to only me, I would say that French is not required. I would say that people who live in Canada and speak French can learn English like I but I also understand that Canada's history is well over 100 years, well over 150 years at this point, And Quebec and Ontario are the founding provinces like upper and lower Canada are the founding like fundamental area of um of Canada and th that's one French province and one English province everything else after that is decoration on the cake as far as Canada's history is concerned and so this is the history that you have to consider when you're coming up with an answer to a question like this so you can't just say French isn't required you can't just go English only because Quebec exists and <laughs> and so having that history in mind, um, I honestly don't even remember what I answered, to be honest. I'm just going to go look it up. Okay. Yeah. Proposition one. I said, I somewhat agree that only those who speak both English and French should be considered mainly because of the history. Again, if it came down to what I would do, if I was like overlord of Canada, I would say like Quebec wants to separate. We want to separate, like, just go, just become your own country, become the country, the nation of Quebec, like you want. If you're your own country, the rest of us will speak only English and not have um, French be an official language that needs to be supported by the public service. That being said, that's not going to happen. Um, there's a whole long history with that. And so I somewhat agree that only those who speak both English and French should be considered for jobs in the top, um, top jobs in the federal government. Okay, that was not too bad. I don't think that's a great question, but I understand why they're asking it. It's not that I don't think that's a good question or good statement, good proposition. I just think that it's more complicated than that. <laughs> and um, one of the first things that I suggested last time in 2019 when I did this is that questions should have like a more information pop up just to give background. Because like if somebody comes into this and they never worked in the federal government, they don't know anything about Mary Scott, all that stuff, like it, it doesn't help you to answer this question. You need the background. Uh, okay. Question two that, again, this, this is the order that I got them in. Question two is, how much should the Canadian government do to make amends for its past treatment of Indigenous peoples? And this question, if I thought the last question was fraught, whew, this question is even more fraught and could even use even more of a pop-up um, giving some backstory. Because obviously, um, especially this year, a lot has come up about, uh, like come up again, about the past treatment of Indigenous peoples in Canada, especially as it relates to residential schools but also as it relates to, I think, properly called, uh, properly described genocide 
um, of Indigenous people in Canada. Um, not as much recently, obviously, but um, you know, a hundred years ago, in the last hundred years, there was a lot, a, just a lot. The, look at the number of Indigenous people there are now compared to the number of Indigenous people um, that there were then. Um, looking back at records, and you can see that there are so many fewer than they used to be, and that is because of early Canadians' efforts. Um, and so, all that having been said, how much should the Canadian government do to make amends for its past treatment of Indigenous peoples? That is a very complicated question. My answer was much more, um, basically because that is the answer that I tend to always give when it comes to, um, you know, this is basically talking about reparations, essentially, or it should be if it's not. Um, and I think that there's, it's like in the history of North America, with the with the colonialism that like founded Canada and the United States. Um, honestly, how much, how many amends do you have to make before you can make up for or like bring to fairness the complete takeover of one of the largest land masses in the world? with if not by force then by luck and disease and force and honestly there's there's not really a whole lot i could think of that i would say yeah that's too much and i think that we have not even begun to make amends for some of the things that that the canadian government especially the canadian government as a white supremacist system did to indigenous people in canada and so simple answer to this question this question I mean, obviously, if you've heard about residential schools and their history, um, I would hope that you tend to agree with this um, and say much more. Um, and yeah, that's my answer. Much more. That one's pretty easy. The next question is also about um, yeah, Indigenous people. Uh, so the third question I got is, how much say should Indigenous people have over how Canada's natural resources are used? Um, and so the choices go for range from much less to much more. Um, I ended up saying somewhat more as my answer. And basically, yeah, I <laughs> right now this this question, like all the questions, really becomes more complicated to answer the more information you have, because effectively right now, um, indigenous people, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, indigenous people have almost no say in how Canada's natural resources are used. They might be consulted with during the the <laughs> the process of using said resources or planning to use said resources but in terms of an actual say over how they're used i would say there's zero and i think there should be some i think there should actually be some say basically the <laughs> for if you listen to the news for the past few years basically the only say that indigenous people have over how the resources are used like actual say is through protest and basically blocking paths to for construction vehicles and and like pipeline building vehicles to get to pipeline sites especially pipeline sites that are located on or require travel through indigenous land and so like i was torn here between saying much more and somewhat more but honestly i don't have the context there there might be some say that indigenous peoples have especially like i mentioned through consultations but um i don't know i don't know and that's basically what it comes down to with a lot of these questions is that a I think like an info hover thing or like a click for more information button on each of these questions would be super useful to give context like you could give 10 pages of context over this I'm sure easily and um, probably hundreds of thousands of pages of context for this. But then 
you get down to the fact that this is it's this CBC now sponsoring the the Vote Compass. It used to be, I think, more independent. Although maybe not. Maybe it's always been CBC. Um, but you, <laughs> this is what it comes down to for me is that um, you always hear, or I've always heard, growing up, that everything is political. Like everything is politics. When you get down to the to like the the bottom of of everything, um, how you describe something is politics. How you give backstory for the treatment of indigenous people or like any, any of these questions that are going to come up um, basically yeah what you write about the context and the history of of the context of a question like this is political because you can leave stuff out that is you know that is something bad that the canadian government did you could um yeah you could exaggerate in the opposite direct direction and basically say yeah indigenous people have already been consulted they're they're constantly giving having a say over how Canada's natural resources are used, whether we listen to that advice or not, or that that input or not. Um, yeah, that's why these questions are so fraught for me because as a surface level thing to like figure out how you politically align, sure. Um, but I honestly feel like the Vote Compass has an opportunity to really influence how people learn about politics, how people learn about the histories of the the reasons behind these questions being answered or being asked. I mean. And so for me, yeah, I said somewhat more, but I could be persuaded to much more depending on how much they're consulted now. I have no idea how much say they have. On to Proposition 4, which is how much of a role should the private sector have in healthcare? Now, this question also comes down to, I don't know if this is other provinces as well, but Ontario is very much having a discussion right now, the, the provincial government, about how much of a role should the private sector have in healthcare? Um, I put somewhat less as my answer. This goes from much less to much more again. Um, I don't think that the private sector should really have a ton of role in healthcare at all. I think our public system works really well. And um, so I'm not saying there should be no role for the private sector. Obviously, there there's a need for for <laughs> for companies to make money, um, healthcare companies. But I don't like private sector healthcare. I have seen the deleterious effects that it has in other countries, which have more prominent private sectors in healthcare. Uh, that's the United States. and I do not want to go in that direction. I definitely would not say more of a, the private sector should have more of a role, but I do feel that they should have somewhat less or perhaps stay the same. Um, my experience with the healthcare sector has been almost entirely public, I think. Um, yeah, having a private option, I think, is not necessarily the worst thing as long as the public option is is better funded and you know, all that stuff and the private sector basically takes care of itself. But um, but I digress. That that's my answer to the question. This one's fairly straightforward. There's no like long sorted history, although there probably is. I just don't know about it or really for the purposes of this question, care about it. All right. Here's a thorny question. How accessible should abortion services be across Canada? Now, this is a question that could use some context because not only have I not necessarily needed to use abortion services, but I definitely do not know how accessible they are to people across Canada. But I suspect especially again when it comes to indigenous communities and rural communities, that abortion services are not accessible at all for political reasons and just for, for logistical reasons. Um, but I would say that there are abortion services that you might not think of as abortion services and that not all abortion services are women getting pregnant too young and having to get rid of a child um, or deciding to get rid of a child. and like the story of abortion is much more complicated than especially growing up as a as a millennial male um 
I don't know what <laughs> what it comes down to uh, with abortion services. I've barely scratched the surface of my knowledge of how they work and how they're provided and what they involve, like what the full set of abortion services involve. Um, that being said, I think there are a lot of political and religious reasons for these kinds of discussions into abortion services. And given the complete separation of church and state that is supposed to be a part of um, the way government is run and these services are offered because they are, again, healthcare services offered by provincial governments, um, I think that abortion services should be more accessible. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the ability to basically go to an abortion clinic and get an elective abortion should be more accessible. But I think there are lots of other abortion services that, um, yeah, sh effectively shouldn't have the same stigma attached. Um, not that I think there should be this massive stigma attached to to getting an elective abortion, um, but there are lots of other services that encompass um, the totality of abortion services that I think should yeah, be more accessible and have less stigma associated with them because not all abortions or not all abortion services are elective. And the last question for this week, because I'm going to do six a week, is again a statement. Canada should end its ties to the British monarchy. And this question, I mean, honestly, this question has at least 150 years of context, none of which is provided here. Should Canada end its ties to the British monarchy? Um, I don't really have a ton to say on this this question. I put strongly agree. I don't actually have, have super strongly held beliefs about this. I just don't think it's necessary. I think we can remain, we can govern ourselves more closely. We don't need a governor general. Um, I don't know if that means ending its ties to the British monarchy. I don't have any, I don't begrudge the British monarchy. I don't mind staying in the Commonwealth. I just think that the system of going to the governor general for, for final assent for our laws is very outdated doesn't really apply anymore and is effectively a rubber stamp that doesn't need to exist. And um, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. I would love to hear reasons why the British monarchy is still important in Canada. But to me, it's just not anyone who cares about the British monarchy can still care about it, even if we're not directly tied to it in order to like make changes to our laws or or create new ones or whatever the case may be. So that's it for my first six questions. And um, I, I always have a lot of fun with this series. Not fun, like some of these questions are very serious and important. Um, but I always find this very interesting to go through, just basically talking about how these questions could potentially be better. And I think we'll get to more of those. These questions are all relatively straightforward. They could all use a lot more backstory and information um, about them. Um, but the way things are with these questions, I think, is okay for the time being. And um, I look forward to going more into detail with the next sets um, over the next month. So thanks very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.